wanted to welcome each of you to in-town church this morning. We're glad that you're in worship with us. And as you've noticed, if you've been here for a while, the kids are also in worship with us. They normally have a children's church during most of the year, but during the summer, they're forced to stay in and listen to me, or worse, Steve. So we're going to give them a little intro to what we're doing and maybe give them a couple of things, a little bit of a Where's Waldo for the sermon so that they can be looking for certain things during the sermon and say, oh yeah, there it is, I got it. And so kids, here's what I would like you to think about. We're going to have a little conversation first before we get into the sermon because I use some big words and I'm not that easy on the eyes and I don't use pictures and so perhaps you might get a little bit bored. And so let's talk for just a minute. When was the last time that you heard a snake talk? What about snakes trying to trick people into doing something? What about someone wearing fig leaves? Have you ever seen anything like that? Well, I I haven't really seen anything like that as well. And you could go home and you could ask your parents what those things mean and did they really happen? And some of you will get different answers from your parents than your friends might. But that's really not the point of the passage. And here's a couple of things just to think about as the primary points of the passage. What's really going on is God is telling us how to live in the world that he has made. It's about how to grow up, how to become wise, how to become an adult that knows how to live in God's word, in God's world. And it's about how to love and how to trust him. Maybe you've heard of a book called The Proverbs. Well, this is sort of the same types of things that Genesis 3 is telling us that we learn in the Proverbs. It's how to be wise. It's how to love God and live in his world. And it has a chapter that speaks directly to each of you. It says, and now, little children, listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, Waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me hurt themselves. All who hate me love death. Now, those are some complicated words as well. There's a lot in that short passage. But as you listen to the sermon, children, think about this. Did Adam and Eve follow this proverb? Did they follow God and find happiness, or did they disobey Him and then injure themselves, hurt themselves by disobeying? Think about that as I read the passage and then as we listen to the sermon. This is our Old Testament reading. And you can find it printed in your bulletin. It's Genesis chapter 3, the entire chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden And you must not touch it, or you will die. 
You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are coming from many different places with many different expectations, many different questions that we have of this text. And I pray that would you sweep aside all of those things that are not pertinent, that are not germane to what you want to do in our individual lives and collectively as a church. Father, we come, many of us standing rooted in the faith for many years, others of us skeptical. We have many big questions, and maybe the way that this text speaks is one of them. How can we possibly believe something like this? Others of us have been de-churched. We've been hurt by the church, and we bring that pain and that suffering to bear upon everything that we hear this morning. And I pray that you would clear away the brush, Father, that you would speak to us 
individually, collectively? Would you sing and dance over us? Would you let us see the love of Jesus yet again and let it illuminate who we are and how we go about life? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, not all of you have had the privilege of driving in a car with young children. Steve just talked about his trip with their youngest, but multiply that by four and let them have words, and lots of words for a long time. And for an introvert like me, going on a trip with the kids in the car, they all seem like extreme extroverts, that they all have incredibly important things to say, and they all want to say them at the same time. And so going on a trip with four kids is one of the funnest things of my life, but it can also be a challenge, and it's hard to focus. It's hard to think about one thing because you've got four things coming at you. And maybe we're approaching Genesis a little bit like that. We have so many questions that we want answered, questions that our culture is demanding that we ask, and questions that even the church at large is demanding that we ask of this text and telling that we must have answers for these things. And often we hear pastors do one of two things. Either with a passage like this, they'll mount a defense as to why we can believe everything in this passage happened just as it has been written. Or with a bit of a wink and a nod, say that, well, this is a pre-modern text, this is an ancient text, and these people weren't sophisticated as us. They would believe anything. And so our job here this morning is to clear that away and just find a nugget of wisdom. But you see, neither of these is really the right approach, because the text ancient readers probably wouldn't have even thought about asking whether these events took place in a journalistic way just as it has been reported. To them, this would be like wisdom literature. And asking whether this is an exact, true, journalistic account to them would be missing the point. In fact, it probably wouldn't even occur to them to ask that question. But it wasn't because they were simpletons. It wasn't because they were pre-modern or pre-scientific. It's because they read this kind of literature every day and knew what to expect of it. So asking whether it happened wouldn't simply not occur to them. It would be the wrong question to ask. And so you see a a text like this with talking snakes and fig leaves challenges the fundamentalist demand that this text has to be 100% accurate in a journalistic, modern sense. The writer has to be reporting an actual event in space and time and have all the details as they actually happened or it cannot be trustworthy in any sense. But it also challenges the modernist assumption that because this writer obviously has their facts all wrong, it undermines its authoritative voice. But you see, both of these are sort of singing off the same sheet of music. They're coming to the text with the same demands and the same expectations and with the same proclivity to miss the point of the text. The central point of the creation account of these first three chapters and what we're dealing with this morning is that God created the world to be a beautiful place of worship, a temple, if you will, a place of beauty that humans then despoiled, that we chose to misuse the temple, believing a gigantic lie and therefore putting ourselves 
in the center of worship rather than God, that we believed a big lie. But as we'll see, God responds to this big lie with a big promise and says that he will remake the world into a place of unimaginable delight, returning it to its proper purpose. And if we're focused on determining whether there was a snake and whether snakes can talk and whether God actually had legs and walked in the garden, we'll miss the beautiful story that's unfolding. We'll miss much of the rest of the Bible and we'll miss the gospel. Well, let's look at those two things, big lie and a big promise. If we take a closer look at the text, the writer is inviting us into this conversation that's happening. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He was crafty. He was shrewd. This word is only used once in Genesis, and here it's to subtly undermine God's authoritative voice and God's intent for creation. But it's used in Proverbs eight times, and it's all positive. Shrewd, crafty is all positive in the Proverbs. So how do we bring these two uses together? A few weeks ago, we were able to spend some time in New Orleans, and I grew up in the, on the Gulf Coast, and so I, I've been there a number of times, and it's become a favorite place for us to go when we visit my family back home. And I've been there a number of times, and there's a number of cons that people play upon, that the natives play on the tourists to gain some money from them. And one of them is, I can tell you where you got your shoes. And most tourists will say, what? There's no way. He can't tell me where I got my shoes. Now, remember, it's New Orleans, and so this trick works often because it's happening on Bourbon Street where people are generally over-drinking. And so they say, no way, he doesn't know where I got my shoes. This guy has no idea. Okay, I'll bite. But the problem is you have to bet. You have to put some money on it. And then they say, I'll tell you where you got your shoes. Now, I've been asked this question probably half a dozen times in New Orleans, but I don't bet because I know the answer. I know the con. I've become street smart, in a sense, just by being there. And when someone says, I can tell you where you got your shoes, I stop them and say, I got them on Bourbon Street. That's where I got them. They're on my feet on Bourbon Street. And they say, well, don't tell anyone else. (laughs) Because, see, what they want you to ask, what they want you to think is they're going to tell you where you bought them, not where you got them. But where I got them is Bourbon Street. Crafty, shrewd street smarts. You see, they're trying to use their street smarts to get you to put money down on something, and they want you to fall for it. They're crafty and shrewd, and it takes the same craftiness and shrewdness and street smarts to not fall for the gag. Crafty, shrewd here in this passage means knowledge about how the world works and knowledge about how human nature works and being wise about those things. You see, the serpent has street smarts, but Eve doesn't. And so she says, okay, I'll bite. I'll go with this con. And she falls for it. How many of us would agree to drink something that we knew to be poisonous? Here, quench your thirst with a little bit of antifreeze. No, thank you, because we know what's going to happen. Of course we're not going to fall for that. Do we 
fall into the temptation of lying because we know that our life is going to unravel and we know that we're going to be found out? Of course not. Do we fall for adultery because we know that we're going to lose our comfortable life and life is going to fall apart and it's going to be the worst decision that we could ever make? Of course not. We don't make decisions like that. We don't fall into temptation because we know where they ultimately lead. Do you see what Satan is doing? He's undermining God with shrewdness, with craftiness, with street smarts. And he is saying to Eve, God has a lot of toys, and he won't let you play with all of them. You see, God has these great toys, and you deserve to play with all of them. And he's saying, no. Instead, he says, this fruit is good for you. This thing that God has said, don't eat, it's actually good for you. It'll make you like a God. And you deserve that. And God doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't want you to be like him. You see, he doesn't tempt Eve. He doesn't tempt Adam. He doesn't tempt you and I normally with a bold rebellion. Let's overthrow the king together. Let's overthrow God together. What he puts in front of her is an opportunity to be discontent. It's just a little window where doubt can creep in. And like many of us, Eve wasn't able to trust God to provide what she needed, and so she operated off a scarcity model. She's not confident that God has her best interest in mind, and so she says, I've got to guard it. I've got to go out and get it. I've got to take advantage of this opportunity. I need to hold on to it. She needs certainty. She needs information. She needs the details of how God is going to provide for her, not just the promise, not just trust. And so you see, this story is not so much about talking snakes. It's not really a systematic theology of how sin enters the world. It's how to live in God's world on God's terms. And this scene inverts the realities ordained by God in the first scene in Genesis 1 and 2. The boundaries which God set up for the man and woman to flourish in, which seem to be a given, are now scrutinized as though they're optional. God begins to be talked about in the third person. He begins to be objectified. He's not party to this conversation. What God has said is now given to analysis and calculation. The givenness of God's rule is no longer a boundary of safety, but it's a barrier that must be circumvented in order to be happy. And the story of trust and obedience, which should have been told, now becomes one of crime and punishment. And it's just like in Dostoevsky's novel by the same name. Raskolnikov begins to hear voices. He begins to imagine things that aren't there. He begins to imagine threats, and his crime begins to undermine him and drive him crazy. You see, Adam and Eve do find autonomy. They do find a certain type of freedom. They're liberated to pursue what they want rather than what God wants for them. But what do they get? Before God even inflicts judgment, they get shame and guilt and imagined threats. Death was the promised result of violating God's boundary 
And it immediately begins to take shape in the form of their nakedness and their hiding. They begin to unravel. They begin to disintegrate. They believed a big lie. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? But that's not what he said. That's not what he said at all. He says you can eat from every tree except one. But see, before Eve, before he even finishes what he's going to say in the Hebrew, it gives this sense that Eve is actually interrupting the serpent. She doesn't even grasp that he's misquoted the Scripture and then has to say what she has to say. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree, from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. But you see, that's not what he said either. It's like no one's paying attention to what God actually said because she adds, you must not touch it. That's not what God said. The lies of the serpent, his distortion, has set before this couple, set before Eve initially, a destiny, a life that wasn't envisioned by the God of the garden, by the one who made them and knows them and knows what they ultimately need. And if he has kept anything from me, even though the world is my oyster, if I can't have this one thing, I can't trust him fully. And so this blessing that he has set up, this garden in which this man and woman can live blissfully with God, this blessing becomes a barrier to circumvent. Now, what are they after? Why do they seek to live outside the boundary? Why do we often seek to live outside of the boundary that God has given us? They wanted knowledge. They wanted information. They wanted understanding. They didn't want just a promise, this ephemeral, non-tangible thing. They wanted actual information. They wanted to be street smart like the serpent. You see, God, there's this tree over here. You've given us this promise, but if you'll let us eat from this tree, then we'll know how you're, gonna go, how you're going to fulfill the promise. We'll have information. We'll know. We'll have certainty. Trust is for suckers. How can you expect us to live by faith when there's this tree over there with all of the answers that, they, that we want? Rather than trust, they choose control. Rather than wisdom, they choose knowledge. And now they have much more of it than they possibly could have wanted to know. And there's no place to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go that their shame doesn't go with them, that their nakedness doesn't go with them. Now, I talked about kids talking loudly in the car, but they also like to do another thing, at least young kids, especially boys. They like to walk around naked. And our youngest at least a few years ago, liked it so much that when people would come over to our house, if they came over regularly, were surprised to find him with clothes on. Steve came over for a staff meeting this one morning and said, oh, I see Elliot has his underwear on this morning. But to them, you see, it's comfortable. They're in no hurry to put clothes on. And oftentimes, it's very funny as well. 
They don't have the street smarts. They don't have the maturity to tell them that they should be hiding. They know no shame. But what if that same kid immediately matured 20 years? They would run for cover. They would be ashamed. They would be embarrassed. It's why you don't see 22-year-olds running around naked. Sometimes you do in Portland, but that's another story. (laughs) This is what God is trying to prevent. It's not that he wants his creatures to be eternal children. It's that he wants to spare them from gaining street smarts in a way that will harm them. He wants them to grow wise in ways that will cause them to flourish and be happy. But they choose the path of least resistance. They choose to disobey. Did I make him upset? Oops. (laughs) And so there's a trial, and God becomes the questioner. And their response to his questions is very telling for it's all about I. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I did. I ate. And their own answer indicts them because the garden was not meant to be about I. It was about to, meant to be about God and his creatures enjoying them. There's this mutuality and equality where the husband and wife beside one another pursue God's purposes. And now, all of a sudden, there's competition. There's jockeying for position. There's blame shifting. That woman you gave me caused me to do it. That serpent tricked me. You see, guilt is not in question. The situation is clear. The facts have laid out, but there's still a big question. And the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible actually hinges upon this. Will the gardener still care for his garden now that it's been despoiled? Will he carry out the sentence as it was promised? There's a big lie that they believed, but we need to look at the big promise because there's a big surprise in store. Excuse me, in our last chapter, we saw that death will follow the violation of this rule, but as it turns out, there's something other some other principle in the judge's mind other than minimum sentencing guidelines. Because of this great expanse of God's grace, he contains what the punishment could be. It is less than we think was promised, and it's almost fraudulent. It's so easy given the nature of the crime. You see, the amazing thing is not that they're punished, but that they're allowed to live. It turns out that there's really no escape from the gardener's love and provision. And so, therefore, a scene of crime and punishment becomes one of crime and grace. A few weeks ago, I was sitting where you are as Steve was going through the confession time, and I was rereading one of the confessional prayers that we were using. And that week it said, There is a wrath of God that I cannot satisfy. And we'd used it numerous times, and I had skipped right over it before it caught my eye. Because I think probably, like maybe is true of many of you, that I, my default expectation of God is that he's mad at me. 
I'm not sure exactly what I've done, but there's this foreboding sense that I'm wholly unlovable, that I'm an awful, terrible, no good person, and any moment God is going to figure it out. And so when I dare approach God, all I can expect is wrath. But you see, this is a big lie too. Just like the serpent takes a kernel of truth and overplays it, I realize that this is what this confession was doing. Yes, of course there is a wrath of God, but this prayer overplays the Bible's hand. Though it's theologically correct, its posture was all wrong. What we see beginning to unfold in this passage and the story that it tells throughout the rest of the Bible is that God's wrath is a function of his love. That God hates sin the way that we hate cancer. We see in this passage, in chapter 3 of the Bible, the opening pages, it sets up the narrative. What can we expect from God? Grace or wrath? Paul picks up on this chapter in Romans and tells us that by one man came death, eternal dying, eternal disintegration. But the news here, the news in chapter 3, the news that Paul continues to tell, the news that Jesus expounds for us is that life and grace come from one man. Death comes, disintegration comes through one man, but life and grace comes through one God, that person of Jesus. And so we see that God loved his world so much that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not disintegrate eternally, will not die eternally, but have what? Eternal life, eternal flourishing, eternal grace. The sentence that God gives to these people is life apart from the goodness of the garden, but not apart from the goodness of God. The curse is conflict with one another, filled with pain and sweat and most interestingly, a distortion of our desire. But it's nonetheless life when death is clearly called for. When the facts warrant death, God insists on life. This is not a simple story about human disobedience and divine displeasure. It's rather a story about God interjecting grace where it has no business being except because his overriding character says it must be. There's no business that grace is in, should exist here except that God can act according to his deepest desire, and that is to show love and grace and mercy upon his people. You see, a rule can be circumvented. They get around the rule. They treat it as a barrier, and they get around it. But the love of God can never be circumvented. You can't get around it. And so the sentence contains a surprise. The cursed ones are protected. The one who tests is the one who then gives grace, who then provides. With the sentence given, God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They can't deal with their shame. They can't deal with their nakedness physically and spiritually. But God can, and he does. 
He gives them physical garments to clothe their nakedness, their physical nakedness, but it is representative of a much deeper nakedness that he also clothes. And throughout the New Testament, to be clothed is to be given life. To be clothed in the garments of righteousness is to receive God's salvation. You see, the couple must finally learn that I must live on God's terms, but his terms are not primarily prohibitive, but their provision. You see, however, the main point that I'm driving at in this second part is a big lie leads to a big promise. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just wiping the slate clean. Go and don't do that again. Don't eat of the tree ever again. But that's no good because the whole world has been despoiled now. The image of God has been corrupted. He can't just forgive them. He has to remake them, and that's actually the promise. The big promise is not just forgiveness, but a promise to undo what you've done to my world and to yourself. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What's going on here? What is the narrator driving at? You see, he has, God has to kick them out of the garden. Why? Is it expulsion, is expulsion punishment, or is expulsion provision? The tree of life, you see, remains in the garden. And so he's restricting them from the tree of life. You say, well, that sounds very prohibitive. But it's not. Because they, though they were made to live forever, they weren't made to live forever on a cursed earth. They weren't made to live forever in pain and conflict and blame shifting and competition and disintegration. They were made to live together forever with God and with one another perfectly. In other words, he's saying you have to leave this garden because if not, you will touch of the tree of life and you will be forever bound to the state that you're in. You'll be forever bound to go around the world cycling through pain and sorrow and death and there will never be an end to it. And that's not what I want for you. Immortality in that state, you see, would be a disaster And so he not only expels them from the garden, but he guards the entrance back to it with a flaming sword that says, no, I am too good. I'm too loving towards you. I will never let you come back in and touch the tree of life as you are. I have to change you. I have to remake you. In fact, I have to remake the whole world. He sends them away from the tree of life, but he follows them. He provides for them even in the disaster that they have made of their lives and of the world, he promises he will never leave them or forsake them until such time as on the cross of his beloved son, he brings back the tree of life and plants it in the world again forever. You see, first there's prohibition, then there's promise, and then there's grace forever. God wills you and I to live forever with him. 
not going through the cycles of immortality with pain and sorrow and death, but living in freedom, living free from fear, living free from punishment. Even in their failure, humankind's greatest failure, he withholds the punishment that they deserve, that we deserve, and takes it on himself instead. Life forever in a resurrected world. And this passage begins to paint for us this picture that develops throughout the Old Testament to the Gospels is that there is one Redeemer who will come and not only offer forgiveness, but offer complete resurrection of your life and of the whole world. And that is the story that begins to open up for us in the garden. It's not just, it's not at all, don't disobey or God will get you. It's that when you disobey, you have an advocate. You have a redeemer that will come and plant a cross, plant a tree of life that you can go to and have life forevermore. Let's take hold of that now as we pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the cross. We are grateful for the gospel that says that you went where we couldn't go, that you went where we should go, that you died the death that we deserved, and to give us a life that is greater than what we could ever imagine. I pray that we would take hold of that. Wherever we are coming from this morning, if we have confessed our sin and taken hold of that promise hundreds of times before, or maybe if today is the first time, would you empower us? Would you let us see Jesus, even in this story, even in this ancient story that seems to have so many confusing parts? Let us see the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.